The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good evening, everyone. If you're, if you're willing to take your seats, we're going we're gonna to get underway. I'm going to turn things over to our moderator in just a moment, but uh, before I introduce our moderator to you and, he, and uh, we begin uh, this debate, uh, I just want to take care of a little bit, bits and pieces of information. Uh, number one, uh, to run an event like this takes a lot of people, uh, a lot of hands, so there are a number of volunteers who have been working uh, tirelessly all afternoon behind the scenes, and if you look around the sides, you'll see those folks with the bright yellow name tags, and uh, we've just appreciated their help, so if you need anything, those are the people that you need to, to speak with. Uh, there's water there, again, available at the front and at the back. Help yourself. Uh, again, just let me mention the washrooms. Washrooms, if you go out these doors, they're to your right. If you go out the back doors, they are to your left. Uh, my name is Jeff Bell. I am one of the pastors at one of the local churches here. And uh, the amazing thing about an event like this is uh, even though I'm a Christian, we can't, can't put it together without ourselves, so we've had some very good help, and I want to introduce you to two other people who have been working behind the scenes, and I, where's John Draper? John Draper is here at the Coburg Atheist, and, uh, and uh, Bill Broderick, he is here, Bill, will you stand up here? Bill is from the uh, Quincy Humanist, they've also got a table out uh, in the hallway there to the sides, as well as we also have the Gideons here. And so feel free to uh, take literature on your way out. Uh, just an, another couple quick announcements. If you notice on your cards, probably about every other chair, we have put comment cards. If you take a moment and just fill those cards out, uh, and if you would like uh, a little bit more information, if you would like to see some more upcoming events or be part of a, learn something more from a faith position or from an atheist humanist position, you can fill that out. Also, this is being recorded, and if you would uh, like a copy of the DVD of this, you can just fill that out, write your name and numbers, and, uh, and we can get that to you, make that available in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, just one other thing, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Booth, you'll get his former introduction in just a little, a little time, uh, but he is guest of Fellowship Baptist Church, which is uh, uh, just to the church next door to the, the Best Western. He will be speaking at both of the morning services there at 8.45 and at 11 o'clock. Uh, now with all that in mind, let me uh, introduce our, uh, our moderator. If you are from the Coburg Court Hope area, you will know our moderator well. Uh, his name is Bob Spooner. He is uh, one of our, our council members here of the city of Coburg. In fact, he is the longest serving member of Coburg's political arena. He was uh, elected in 1985 as a member of the school board and for the last 19 years as one of the, the city councillors. Bob has been Coburg's deputy reeve for three years, the deputy mayor for six, and uh, currently his role is with the area of parks and recreation. Also, if you are a hockey fan, even if you don't recognize Bob, you may recognize his voice. He was the play-by-play -play here for, for both Port Hope and Coburg for 14 years. He ran a, a local program, uh, uh, a sports program on CHUC radio for 14 years called Spooner on Sports. Uh, he was, even took, did a stint of three years with, with the uh, 
uh, with the Birmingham Bill Bulls as the play-by-play -play for them of the uh, World Hockey Association. So, uh, so a great, he's got a great resume. Just one other thing, just with regards to, to Bob, his, his big area again, as I've already mentioned, is with the area of parks and recreation. And uh, for Bob being with us this evening, an honorarium has been made, or a donation has been made to the city of Colbert to go towards uh, the building that will be starting soon of the new Colbert Community Center. And so we're pretty excited about that. Also, if you notice, just around the doors, uh, there are just little donation bins. The idea of uh, tonight's event is not to raise money or to, to make any money for anyone. Uh, uh, in fact, tonight is made possible by some very generous donations, and we really appreciate that. Uh, but there is a, a, a little bit of cost. Once that is received, if you want to put something in, anything over above those costs is going to go to the City of Coburg towards the Community Center, uh, which is Bob Spooner's project. And I think that's a worthy thing. Will you give a nice, warm welcome on a very cold evening to a great public service, Sarah? sitting there wondering who are you introducing. I'm starting to get impressed. <laughs> I was offered this opportunity and I didn't hesitate to take the job because in Canada we live in a country that's diverse. We live where the neighbor doesn't have to be the same as you to be accepted. This is the idea of such a project and such a debate this evening. There's diverse opinions and we all have our opinions. Sometimes they're not very good but other times they are. The point I'm trying to make is when the introduction of our two speakers tonight, when they get up to speak, please be polite. Treat them as if they were your neighbor. Treat them as if they were a visitor to your home. We don't want anything. We know your opinions may differ. But this is to give you food for thought. When you leave here this evening and you're going to Tim Hortons with your friends, maybe you'll talk about what you heard tonight. And this is what it's all about. It's not to put anybody down. And I would appreciate if that was taken into consideration. First of all, I'd like to introduce to you our two debaters this evening and thank them kindly for coming here to Coburn and giving you the opportunity to hear two sides of a coin. First of all, Reverend Joe Boot, apologist, educator, author, and pastor. Joe? Thank you very much. And we have Dr. S. Clara Rosen, psychiatrist, humanist, Dr. Ross. And the format tonight for the first half of the program will be 20 minute uh, speech from each candidate. At the end of the 20 minutes, there will be four minute rebuttal from each if they wish to rebut anything that was stated. And then from the rebuttal, there will be a two-minute. So you're going to hear them for 20 minutes each before they get into the rebuttal questions. So it's my pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, to open tonight's uh, debate by having Reverend Joe Boot come to the microphone. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you for being here, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, be able to present the theistic perspective this evening. Thank you to the organizers, to, to Bob for 
uh, moderating this evening, especially to Claire for being my discussion partner. We've agreed beforehand we will drop the appendages to our names and just call each other Claire and Joe so that this stays on an informal basis. The question uh, before us tonight, though, is an important one. Does God exist? And since I only have 20 minutes, I'm going to move uh, steadily but swiftly through what I want to say. It's important to remember that the question tonight is not whether we like God or whether we have autobiographical commentary as to whether what God has or has not done is to our liking. The question is whether God is necessary to make intelligible sense of human experience. That is the question. Strict atheism is impossible. There's a good reason for that. It's possible that God exists outside the sphere of your knowledge. And unless you know everything and are omnipresent and are everywhere, strict atheism is impossible. In fact, the only being that could be an atheist is God, because he's the only one who is everywhere in all places and at all times who could affirm that there was no God. So atheism really reduces to skepticism about arguments for theism or agnosticism. Uh, Claire this evening will doubtless present us with a number of reasons as to why she is not a theist, but strict atheism is impossible. At the same time, I want to acknowledge that I am not neutral this evening. I am a Christian, and I come to this question pre-committed. Uh, it's important to say that because I don't believe any form of reasoning is neutral. All of us believe certain things about reality. We're all pre-committed. One of the most famous atheists, skeptics in the UK, uh, some years ago was Bertrand Russell, and he said, my outlook on the world is, like other people's, the product partly of circumstance and partly of temperament. Pick up the Humanist Manifesto 2, you will read that the humanism is a religious belief, it's a religious perspective, it's a set of assumptions about the world. Before you came here tonight, you already believed something about the world. You'll leave here tonight also believing something about the world. Religion is essentially a set of beliefs and values about which we, with which we wrestle with the important and ultimate questions about life. So I want to suggest that you're not neutral either. You are looking at the world through a set of lenses. They will either be theistic lenses or non-theistic lenses. I would also add that all of you have a divinity concept of some sort. You may not believe in the personal God of the Bible that I'm defending this evening, but you have a divinity concept. That is, you believe that there is some form of reality that is non-dependent or independent reality. That might be the vacuum. It might be energy, as it were. A vacuum is a physical entity, a, a sea of fluctuating energy with a physical substructure. That's what you might believe is ultimate. But that which is divine in our worldview, in our understanding of life, is simply that which is non-dependent, not dependent on anything else. All of you believe something to be non-dependent. That is your divinity concept. The problem when we come to a question like this, though, is that we can't prove these most basic beliefs that we have directly. Now, if I say to you that my most basic belief is God, there's nothing beyond God with which I can, above him, with which I can establish him directly to you. Otherwise, the thing which I established God with would be my most ultimate belief, wouldn't it? That would be my most basic assumption about reality. 
So when we go about establishing something in this ultimate sense, we have to do so indirectly. There's lots of things that you can't prove. You can't prove tonight the existence of other minds. You can't establish the reliability of your memory. In fact, you can't prove the material universe exists. No philosophers have been able to offer arguments that establish the existence of other minds outside your mind. The question tonight, then, is about ultimate starting points, the foundation for knowledge. That's what we're asking. What is behind all things? Is it God, or is it the finite self, you, your mind? Is God behind all things, or must we understand reality purely in terms of your mind? Everything that we do begins with a set of assumptions, science included. The noble laureate Leon Lederman said this, to believe that which cannot be proved is the essence of physics. All of our scientific activities proceed on a set of assumptions that nature is ordered, structured, designed, rational, and intelligible. Otherwise you couldn't be a scientist. So we are all religious. You can call it humanism, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever you want to call it, we all have assumptions about the world. What type of evidence, though, is relevant then to our answering the question whether the self or God is the necessary starting point for knowledge and truth? Well, if you want to establish whether a piece of music is beautiful, you don't stick a CD under the microscope, do you? If you want to establish the true nature of numbers, you don't go and collect the fridge magnet numbers that you, my, my kids have fridge magnets. You don't collect all those up, collect all the fridge, mag, the fridge magnet shapes, then say, ah, I've got numbers now. Or hold the CD and say, ah, I've got beauty now. No, you determine those things differently. Some people approach this question very simplistically, and I think in an absurd fashion. There was a mother one day, she was cleaning out the kitchen, it was evening time, about 8 o'clock, and she said to her son, I need the broom, Ben. And he said, Mum, where's the broom? She said, it's in the shed in the garden. Can you go and fetch it for me? He says, no, it's dark. I'm scared of the dark. She says, don't worry, Ben, because God is out there and he's everywhere, so he'll protect you. Just sing along the way. Nothing to be scared of. He wasn't sure. He said, are you sure God's out there? She said, yes, of course I'm sure. Just go and fetch me the broom. So he walked towards the door a bit uncertain, opened it a couple of inches and said, God, if you're out there, can you please fetch me the broom for the shed? <laughs> now, we don't answer the question of God in that kind of a fashion. Because if this God exists, then he stands behind everything as the creator and governor of all things who called the universe into existence. You don't get angry with Shakespeare because he doesn't fall out the pages of Hamlet. He's the writer, he's the creator. Therefore, the empirical method of scientific investigation is never going to be able to uncover the immaterial, eternal, creator God of Scripture. He's not a material, physical entity, therefore asking about God requires a different type of question. What we are asking about God tonight, about reality, is what will allow us, atheism or theism, the self or God, to understand and not reduce our experience to absurdity? Now, I believe my argument tonight is essentially this. 
that if the non-theists were consistent with what they professed to believe about the world, that there's no God, no design plan, no purpose, no overarching structure, they could have no knowledge and no moral truth. Life is reduced to the absurd in every area. That's not to say that non-theists don't have knowledge, they do. Not to say that they're not moral, they can be. It is to say that were they consistent with what they believe, they could not be. They borrow from my worldview, from the theistic worldview, in order to allow themselves to speak in terms of rationality and truth. I'm going to try and substantiate that for you a little bit. In the 18th century, there was a philosopher called David Hume, a Scottish empiricist, and he argued this, if we start with ourselves as the basis for all knowledge, my mind, he says that it stands to reason that there's no evidence for the material world or for God. He said, I am a bundle of sensations. How do you know the person sat, sat next to you is not simply an aspect of your subjective experience? They're not really there. I could be a figment of your imagination. These have gone off cheese. A bad Tim Hortons coffee. How do you know? What can we know? He said, real and certain knowledge of the external world is impossible. Laws, which we call laws like the uniformity of nature, he says, are beliefs. He says, but until we've been to tomorrow to experience tomorrow, how can we know anything about tomorrow? These are all, he said, metaphysical assumptions about the future. He was a skeptic. He noted, events are co-joined, that is, one event follows another. He says, we don't see a law of causality. We just have these random events and the impressions that they make on our minds. In fact, all we have, we have, he says, is the mind. Hume has never been refuted in this. The question of being able to move from one observation about reality, like objects fall to the ground, to a general conclusion, is still a live one. There were physicists in the 20th century, like Ernst Mach, Mach 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you know, the speed of sound. He was followed by a great number of scientists and philosophers who didn't believe atoms existed. He said they were useful fictions. How do we know anything at all? That is the question. There was a, a philosopher who was very troubled by this. His name was Immanuel Kant. And he said, okay, granted, the world is relative to our minds. So all we can know, he said, we can't know about things in themselves, what reality really is. We can only know things as they appear to us. We can develop knowledge in terms of how things appear to us. And he tried to set up a set of conditions how we could know this, but they were culturally conditioned. The mood of our own time today is what is called existentialism. Perhaps the most honest of the existentialists, the kind of early existentialist, the proto-existentialist, was Nietzsche. I like Nietzsche, son of a Lutheran pastor. I like him because he was honest about what his convictions really led to and meant. He actually anticipated modern psychology, modern language theory, and logical positivism, various other things. He famously said, God is dead, and thus spake Zarathustra. He says, look, all we have is the mind, the thinking subject, and our own wills. We have to create our own values. There's no God. And he said, the sophistication of all the philosophers' arguments, he says, these are nothing but, these philosophers are lawyers for their own prejudices. They just defend what they've already decided is true. If there's no God, he says, there is no value, there is no truth, there's nothing objective. 
It's just my preferences and my will. And if I want to assert that will, I shall, he said. There's no original text, no absolute context. So Nietzsche said, I hear we still believe in God, because we still believe in grammar. One of his famous aphorisms. If there are rules, he said, even in language, that implies that there is a law and a structure above my mind, and that cannot be. It's thought, of course, is self-destructive. Nietzsche went mad. I went insane. He was a sick man. But he was at least a man who had the courage of his convictions to follow his assumptions where they lead. Today, we've reached the same conclusion amongst the more modern thinkers. Jean Paul Sartre said, we are a bubble on an ocean of nothingness. How can anything really be known on such a basis? So this argument tonight is about ultimate foundations. And I want you to think in terms of that and remember that. How can you really know or be sure of absolutely anything in a universe without God? How can you know your assertions about anything bear any relationship to the world? Bertrand Russell, the great mathematician, spoke about his great disappointment when he discovered that Euclid, the Euclidean geometry, his mathematics began with axioms, that is basically unprovable assumptions. He wanted certainty, he wanted to know things. He said, by the time I reached 38, he says, I'd done everything I could in mathematics, and all I had achieved was to throw doubt on the validity of arithmetic. How do you know without faith in God that there is a real world out there, that your mind is giving you anything re reliable about the world, if there is no God? In other words, if we make ourselves ultimate in the universe, we find that we are, in the end, if consistent, unable to know anything but our own minds. Here's the question. How are you going to judge tonight between the arguments that Claire will offer and the arguments I'm offering? What criterion, what basis are you going to use to validate, oh yes, I agree with Claire, that's true, or no, I don't agree, that's wrong. What's the basis for right and wrong in the world of subjective minds? Your brain is just a product of chance and chaos. What's the basis for saying that that's true and that is false? If there is no absolute, because all of us are finite limited creatures, we'd all acknowledge that, wouldn't we? You don't know everything about the universe since the birth of the universe, the first atom to its end. There are many things we don't know. You've got one subjective experience and interpretation. I've got another where there's no God. So on what basis do you judge Joe's wrong? Or Claire is right? So we have a web of beliefs, and today philosophy has sunk into what we call pragmatism. We've stopped asking the questions about ultimate reality. We've said, well, just do what works. Do what works for you. If that works for you, great. You do Jesus, I go to the gym. So my argument today is that for the universe to be truly intelligible, to have a meaningful world, we need a foundation that enables us to give explanation. And in the end, either you are the final referent, your mind is the final referent to all truth, or it is God. Do you want the job? The argument from Design Plan, then, looks something like this. You and I confront a world we never made, unless there's somebody here who thinks they created the universe. And so, in a context where we are creatures and we know it, if 
There is a cosmic impersonalism out there. Then there's no design plan, there's no structure, there's no absolute God who's revealed himself or spoken into history. All meanings in the world are social constructs. You have a meaning, they have a meaning, they've got a meaning, they've got a meaning. And there's no basis to judge between these meanings. Albert Camus and other existentialists believe we live in an absurd and meaningless world because we're surrounded by this horde of irrationals. Up from the womb of chance, all the facts of existence are thrown out. The Christian position, though, is that there is an absolute God, the creator God, who knows and governs all the facts and therefore has given a true interpretation of reality. Without God, there is no absolute context, there's no true interpretation. You are confronted instead with a brute fact. You see, the non-theist says the universe is not already structural in nature. There's no God, there's no design plan, there's no overarching objective purpose. That means, very simply, that you are left to give the universe a structure. You're left there to give it meaning. You are, in a sense, origin in an original fashion, giving the universe meaning. That's where you're left. It doesn't matter what meaning any philosopher or thinker or your teacher, your mum, your dad, your friend Bob down at the pub, Jerry Springer, Oprah Winfrey. It doesn't matter what meaning they've given it. That's just their mind in the sea of the chaos. What meaning is there in it objectively without God? None. So you are left with your meaning. The isolation of your interpretation in a universe of flux. You are confronted, in other words, with brute facts. They are uninterpreted and they are unrelated. My children, when they were very small, did uh, what we call in England, join the dot puzzles. Do you remember those? They're little dots on a page and you join them up and a picture emerges. Right? Now, the reason a picture emerges is that there is a relationship established between the dots on the page by the artist. So that when you join the dots up, as any child can, a picture emerges. That's a house. That's a car. That's a duck. Now, in a universe of brute fact, what I'm trying to describe to you, that is a universe where there is no relationship between the dots. They're random. It's chaos. There is no picture. There is no structure. So all you can do, you can't find the structure and the pattern and the meaning. All you can do is invent one for yourself. And of course, that by definition can only be for you, not for anybody else. So tonight, if God doesn't exist, I've invented my meaning, Claire's invented hers, you can all invent your own, we should all go home, go to the pub now. Go to Tim Hortons now, because there is no absolute context. There is no objective meaning. There is no ultimate purpose. Now you might say, well, okay, I've got these, these uh, isolated irrationals all around me. You know, some people say, well, we just need more facts. Then we can add things up together. Well, if you've got zero, and you add 10 billion zeros to your zero, like a woman's necklace with 10 billion beads, but no thread to link them together, if you add 10 billion zeros, what have you got? Zero. You don't get meaning by adding more and more irrational, unrelated particulars together and say, oh, look, suddenly the world makes sense. It's still totally irrational and impervious to reason. The atheist worldview is inherently irrational. It cannot be anything but irrational. And yet, it so often claims to be the very personification of rationality. A brute fact can never be anything other than a brute fact. 
And what starts to become clear is that the very idea of proof without God is absurd. You are simply left as an agent in the universe, a being without essence, struggling for some kind of meaning. I put it to you that God is absolutely necessary and required to have meaning, purpose, or rationality in the world. Thank you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard the 20 minutes that we have given Reverend Boot, and now 20 minutes for Dr. Rosen. Somebody else's. Have a 
the scientists, philosophers, and theologians proven that God exists? No, they haven't. They still haven't. Robert A. Heinlein said, looking for God is like searching in a dark cellar at midnight for a black cat that isn't there. You cannot see, hear, taste, or smell God unless you're under psychiatric care or need of it. God or Jesus, who allegedly is the same person, hasn't been seen or heard of in 2,000 years. If God really wants to convince people that he exists, why does he make it so difficult to believe in him? Why doesn't he just show up from time to time and explain the unexplainable things like the origins of the universe? He could have shown us how to find antibiotics a lot sooner, saving billions of lives. It didn't do much good for God to send his son to the middle of a desert region where most people were, and still are, Jewish or Muslim. They were mostly uneducated nomadic people who couldn't read or write. St. Paul, who was a Roman in a more educated land, didn't actually see God as a person, just a bright light on the road to Damascus which he interpreted to be the Holy Spirit. There were no independent observers, no eyewitnesses to this event. He could have had a hallucination. Perhaps he was suffering from a type of epilepsy known as temporal lobe epilepsy. This often makes people hallucinate and see bright lights, and they often attach religious significance to that. Why do people today believe God exists? Where does a belief in God come from? Belief in God stems from a phenomenon known as mind-body dualism. This is an idea that somehow the mind is separate from the body. It's not part of it. It's not a very large step from there to believe in the supernatural. The mind, or even the heart, is projected out into space in the idea of God and heaven. And Christians are very good at deliberately sometimes confusing the meanings of words such as heart, soul, spirit, and consciousness. I quote the Bible. Jeremiah 17, 9 states, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Of course, now we know the heart simply pumps blood around the body. The mind is also part of the body. It's not a separate entity. It cannot live without the body. This can be proven by a simple brainwave test known as the EEG, or electrocephalogram. When a person dies, there are no more brainwaves. This is because the electricity has been turned off, just like unplugging a computer. A man called Dr. Michael Persinger has devised an experiment where he could actually induce religious feelings and experiences mechanically in an individual. He put a helmet, a metal helmet, over the heads of the people, and through it he passed a strong magnetic current, electromagnetic waves. He found that areas of the temporal lobes of the brain were responsible for giving people religious feelings, so he could induce religious feelings artificially in a laboratory situation. <coughs> Nietzsche, as Joe pointed out, said that God is dead. But Freud said, God is dad. In other words, God is a projection of an internalized father figure. Your own father is an authority figure. He punishes you when you are bad. He rewards you when you are good. And if you don't have good parents, God can become an idealized version of what you might wish your parents to be. On the other hand, bad parents can become projected as a punitive, wrathful God. So this explains why people's ideas of God vary so much, because their individual experiences from their own parents' parents. So therefore, God did not create man in his image. Man created God in his. Man invented God. 
Old babies are born atheists. Conditioned, children are conditioned by their parents, churches, mosques, and society to believe in whichever God is appropriate to their background. Muslim parents will bring up Muslim children. Jews will bring up their children to be Jews. Mormons will raise the Mormons, and so on. Give me a child until he is seven, actually it's more like five, and I will give you the man. That's an old Jesuit saying. So is the Bible proof that God exists? Well, Christian believers say that God wrote, or at least inspired, the writing of the Bible, saying he is God. This is hardly objective evidence. It's a good example of circular reasoning. A.J. Rowling wrote, wrote a book saying Harry Potter was a wizard. Does that mean that Harry Potter was a wizard? A real magic person? It has been said that it's almost impossible to go through theological college and seminary school without having some serious doubts about the existence of God. Why is this? Because the students who study the Bible and learn about its historical origins and development learn what it's really all about. The Bible, according to modern theologians and biblical scholars, is a collection of historical fiction, myths, and parables mixed in with some rather nice poetry. They admit that it is not to be taken literally. If you read it carefully, and not just the cherry-picked verses that the minister feeds you in church, you will soon see it's full of mistakes. How can you take it literally? The Bible says insects have four legs. Really? I thought they had six. Rabbits chew their cud. Bats are birds. They are, of course, mammals. Snails melt, and snakes eat dirt. Did the all-powerful all and perfect Bible God forget what he had created? It also says the moon is its own light source, and plants were created before light. There are 14 separate references to the earth being flat. There are still some people who believe that. And which version of the Bible is God's version? The King James Version? The Catholic Bible? The Mormon Bible? Maybe it's the email the Vatican Bible, the Sinai Bible. The Sinai Bible is interesting. It's been recently acquired by the British Library, and it's also published online, and it shows many corrections to the New Testament dating back to about 400 CE. The Bible was extensively corrected at the time of Emperor Constantine in 400 CE. The Council of Nicaea made changes that included adding the myths of the virgin birth and the resurrection to make the Bible stories more magical and appealing to the polytheists and pagans of ancient Greece and Rome. These stories were not present in earlier versions of the Gospels. Ever since, the myth of God and the Trinity has been fostered and encouraged throughout history for reasons of power and financial gain. Churches and monasteries demanded payments. Cardinals and popes are often more powerful um, even than kings and queens. Even today, there are close ties between religious groups and political parties. Religion is big business and big money. The Reverend Booth makes some huge assumptions that we exist and the universe exists because of God. These are what he calls preconditions. But how does that prove God's existence? It merely begs the question, who then made God and how did he make God is not necessary as a precondition for the universe. The existence of God would only serve to make it more difficult to explain, not easier. If, as Joe Boot suggests, the universe is only here because we are here, how come the universe is 14 or 13.5 billion years old and the Earth is 4 billion years old? 
What was God doing all those billions of years before he created mankind? Designing mankind obviously wasn't a priority. Even if you think someone or something did create the universe out of nothing, how do you know that it was God and not some kind of advanced alien species? If that's what you call God, is that God the same as the Christian God, or is it another type of God altogether? Could it be more than one entity? That would be polytheism. Any entity large enough and powerful enough to create the universe should be huge and impersonal. Such a God would hardly be interested in a tiny speck of dust known as planet Earth, let alone its human population. Or maybe God was the opposite, very tiny. Maybe God is just another name for the first quark or the first quantum that created itself out of nothingness. The absentee landlord view of God states that an impersonal God may have created the universe but then have no further interest in it. But this is not the theistic view of God that we are debating tonight. So is God still needed to fill gaps in human knowledge? There really isn't much left for God to do. At one time, people needed a God to explain many things that people now know the answers to. What caused thunder, fire, etc. Today we have most of the answers already. Scientists are very close to discovering the origins of the universe. Although the Big Bang Theory isn't perfect, it's fairly close. Scientists actually think that we may be able to discover the origins of the universe in the next 20, 30 years. <coughs> The origins of life on Earth, a process known as abiogenesis, by the way, not evolution, is much easier to explain. All the requisite elements were present in the early days of the Earth. Oxygen and hydrogen and falling water, nitrogen and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, sulfur and phosphorus from volcanic activity. Add water to carbon chains and you get a simple carbohydrate or sugar molecule. Add a phosphate radical and a little radiation, you get RNA. Just recently, an organic chemist in Manchester, England, called John Sutherland, has been able to make simple forms of RNA in the lab. These RNA strands can self-replicate. Other scientists are working on manufacturing algae, the simplest plant forms. Modern knowledge is growing exponentially. We no, we no longer need a God to explain these things. Turning now to the moral argument, God certainly doesn't exist to give us morals. In fact, according to the Bible, he performed and encouraged almost every immoral deed out there. Everything from rape and stoning to infanticide and genocide. Only about two of the Ten Commandments are actually useful. Thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not kill. Everyone lies and covets. Jesus wasn't much better as he condemns everyone to eternal damnation who doesn't do as he says. At least there's no hell in the Old Testament. So where do our moral standards come from? As Joe said, I like Sartre, Morality is individual and relative. It changes with time and with the society in which you live. For example, uh, it is now considered immoral to smoke in people's houses. Twenty years ago it wasn't. It used to be fine to beat your kids and rape your wife. Now, not so much. Different ethnic groups have different moral standards. Sharia law, for example. Very young children and psychopaths have no morals at all. Fortunately, only one in 80 individuals is a psychopath with no conscience. If the only reason you are good because of God, you'll get into trouble with God if you behave badly, then you're a hypocrite. 
You don't possess true altruism. Altruism means having an internalized moral conscience. It's one of the, he the healthier mental defense mechanisms, as described by Anna Freud in the post-Freudians. In other words, you feel happy and you relieve anxiety when you perform an act of altruism or kindness. Do people need God to give lives purpose and meaning? No. There is no ultimate purpose other than the survival of the self and survival of the species. Sorry. You can make your own life meaningful if you want to without God. It's up to you what you do with it. You can paint a great work of art, you can compose a great masterpiece, or you can help starving children in Haiti or Africa. It's entirely up to you. Sartre said that as well. So is over half the world wrong about God? In the world, there are just slightly less Muslims than all the other different kinds of Christians put together, including Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Non-religious people rank third, about 16% just above Hindus. However, if you add all the other religions together with the non-believers, Christians are far outnumbered. Just try and imagine a world without God. There is no judgmental father figure watching your every move. You don't have to fear death as there's no judgment and no hell. Death is no different from a dreamless sleep. Christians seem to feel that life is some sort of test that explains why God does bad things to good and innocent people. There is no test where you pass or fail. As it says on the atheist buses, stop worrying and enjoy your life. People who were Christians and ceased to believe in God have said it felt like putting down a heavy suitcase. A great burden was lifted from them, like in Pilgrim's Progress. Finally, to quote John Lennon, who is also an atheist, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. I can't see it. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Shaking down like this. 
My random chemical event is leading me to say there is a God. Claire's random biochemical event is leading her to say there is no God. Hence, no point in the debate, no point in the discussion. The burden of proof is not simply with me. Of course you can't discover God empirically. You can't smell, taste, touch him. I dealt with that. God is spirit. He called all things into existence. He is not going to be discovered under a leaf in the garden or under a rock at the bottom of your garden. Religious feelings can be generated apparently by sticking a, a, a helmet on and charging you with electricity. Well, a number of other feelings, I suspect, would arise also from <laughs> through your head. And that is not relevant at all to the question of whether God exists, whether I can have a bizarre fact, take drugs and have a bizarre feeling, take LSD and feel superhuman. That is irrelevant. Freud, of all people, who was a son victim, uh, an atheist, well, he simply transferred his rage against his own father, one might argue, equally psychologically validly, onto God. Freud said that basically man was, because of the primal horde, that he arose basically from uh, lifeless chemicals through the evolutionary tree and story, and that man, basically his desire is to eat his father and copulate with his mother. That incest, murder and cannibalism are basic to your nature and mine, and my struggles in life are the result of repressing that. I'm, I feel guilt because of an unconscious past that I wanted to have sex with my mother and eat my dad. I don't find that credible argumentation, and, I, and Freud was just a man filled with venom against the God of Scripture. His last book, Moses and Monotheism, is spitting his hatred of God. Babies are born atheists. I've never heard such nonsense. I have three children myself. Children do not need to be instructed that they are creatures and that there is a creator. It's the thing that comes most naturally to children. Where are we? That's the question in terms of uh, rationality and thinking about the being of God. If you are a product, as Claire has argued, of mindless chemical forces, your brain is just material, it's matter then there's nothing, no conclusion that you walk out of here with tonight has anything to do with logic or reason. It's just the, flux, the random flux of atoms in your brain. Not logic. Don't go away thinking, ah, I really worked out that Joe was, uh, his arguments were spacious and vacuous and illogical. There's no such thing as logic. There are no logical laws that transcend your mind in such a world. Charles Darwin said this, with me the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which is developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the conviction of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? Without God and his order, his structure, his patterning, that's the question tonight. What are the preconditions of an intelligent world? Claire has basically acknowledged ethics, purely subjective, culturally conditioned. And yet she says, I'm not truly altruistic. If I obey God because I, I believe that God is judge. Well, she's invoking true ethics at that point. She's saying that there are true and false ethics. On what basis? Ethics on the atheist basis are, basis are purely subjective, purely relative. It may be wrong to torture babies next week, uh, it, but how about two years from now? It may be wrong to kill Jews today. How about 40 years from now? Ethics do not change with time. Just because one culture or one group does this, perhaps eats their neighbor, and others love their neighbor, doesn't make ethics relative. As for the Bible, 
Well, she obviously reads a very different Bible to me and different biblical scholars to me. You can go to John Ryland's University in Oxford and pick up a, a partial copy of the Gospel of Matthew, the oldest extant papyrus fragment dating from the beginning of the second century. It wasn't changed by Constantine.
Uh, getting back to the last comment of Joe's about the, um, the oldest version of the Bible, uh, there may be some Dead Sea Scrolls, but I don't, I don't know about the existence of anything uh, like Matthew being that old. But the key thing is that there was nothing about the resurrection, the crucifixion, or the virgin birth in the early, earlier versions of the Bible. They were added later for political and religious reasons. Constantine wanted to unite the churches for political power. He wanted to gain power. He gave power to the, Catholic, the original Catholic Church. He actually gave a lot of money to the Pope. Um, and he united all the little Christian sects that were all fighting with each other at the time to um, be under him, basically, under the Pope, uh, to establish the origins of the Christian Church. facile 
and is false. We have the textual evidence of the New Testament. Origen, the early church father, cites all 27 books of the New Testament centuries before the canon was finally established at the end of the 4th century. Reverend Booth took one that he'd like, Reverend uh, 
Mrs. Rousey to answer, and vice versa. So the first two from each of them were from themselves and back to themselves. In other words, Joe will answer one he picked himself, and he'll answer one that was picked uh, by his opposition in tonight's program. They get two minutes to answer the question, and if uh, first going to the dais is uh, Reverend uh, or Dr. Rousey, we'll go to the dais. And the question that I'm reading is from Bob Bolton, and it is, it appears that the atheist and the religious both want the best for mankind. What characteristic of a person are conducive to evil behavior? Yeah, what characteristic of a person are conducive to evil behavior? Well, as a psychiatrist, I can say about 1 in 80 people are psychopaths with no conscience. Televangelists are overrepresented in this group. Good example, Pat Robertson. Professor Robin Priest, one of my former teachers, did a study of people in prisons. He found that most of them were mentally ill, including drug addicts, alcoholics, schizophrenics, and some mentally handicapped people who are easily led by not-so-nice people with greater intelligence. I could go on about what makes a terrorist psychologically and what makes a gang member. They all have their own psychopathology, but basically, um, evil is a behavior, it isn't a, it isn't a thing, uh, it isn't a person called Satan. It's a, it's a behavior mostly due to a lack of moral conscience. And the lack of moral conscience is because they have, the psychopaths have immature or shriveled up temporal lobes in their brain. Thank you very much. For Reverend Boot is from Bill Broderick. Okay. Yeah. He wishes to respond to the answer. Well, first of all, the question: We all want what's best for humankind. That presupposes a teleology, a purpose to existence. What is best? How do you determine what's best? How do I determine what, what is best? Or humankind. What are the characteristics of a person uh, are which what are conducive to evil? Well, then you've got a problem with defining evil. Now, uh, Claire this evening has said that it, it's a violation of their conscience. I thought that was a Christian idea. Uh, conscience, what, what is conducive to evil is a violation of God's law. I think what leads to evil is a failure to take God's law and conscience and judgment seriously. Evil uh, presupposes that you can differentiate good from evil. You can't do that in atheist world. You've just got subjective tastes and preferences. You've got relativistically, historically conditioned ideas. You don't have good and evil. You certainly don't have the notion of purpose and best. Now, Freud didn't believe that there was a solution to the uh, problem of guilt uh, anyway. Uh, evil uh, was a, essentially a social construct. From a psychological perspective, uh, he thought that if he could explain why people feel guilty, i.e. their unconscious past, then they'd actually be um, liberated to shake off the constraints of God's law and essentially live as they felt uh, best to them which in terms of their unconscious was uh, incest, murder, and cannibalism. So my question is, how do you have moral conscience and an idea of evil 
in the universe without God. And you can't. suffering in the world. Specifically, why did he hit Haiti with an earthquake? Well, people are very interested in God, interested in God in the face of tragedy, often at no other time. Uh, but every single worldview has to grapple with this question, not just Christianity. Why is there its suffering? It's a subset of the problem of evil. Now first, let me say that on an atheist perspective, as I've just mentioned, there is no evil and suffering. These concepts are illusions. One man's pain is another man's pleasure. It's only biblical faith that gives you objective good and evil that transcends my own personal feelings and taste. In an atheist worldview, what's the difference between a tree falling on a hive of bees and a building falling on biochemical machines called humans? None whatsoever. Because we're all just from the flux, we're random collocations of atoms. There is nothing to be upset about. The atheist shouldn't complain. Excuse me, but crap happens. That's just the way the world is. That's nature. It's red in tooth and claw. Plates move and buildings fall down. And that's all there is to it. It's just blind, pitiless indifference. No, the Christian faith says, no, every event has meaning, even if I can't explain to you exactly what it is. Jesus says that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. In other words, Christianity posits a universe of total meaning. That every aspect of your life and everything in your life is meaningful, even if you can't perceive immediately what the meaning of a given event is. And it's interesting to note that for most people, they do feel that there's a problem when earthquakes hit and innocent people die, because they think the world's broken. The things shouldn't be this way. Well, why should you think like that? If this is a chance, naturalistic universe, why should you ever think that the world is broken? No, this world is just chaos. It's, it's uh, nature red in tooth and claw. It's violence, it's decay, it's destruction. That's what the world is. Why should you be concerned about it? Shouldn't that be your natural assumption? But no, when we see this, we say the world is broken. Well, the gospel of Christ in Jesus, Christ comes by working miracles, by dying at the cross. He says, I'm going to redeem this broken creation and restore it to what we all know it was originally created for it. Neither does Jesus, who condemns everyone to hell that doesn't follow him. 
Most people, and that includes humanists, follow the golden rule. This is do as you would be done by, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Joe would say, oh well, of course, it's God that gives us these morals. Sorry, it was Confucius, 600 years before Jesus, who said that. There are also laws, as I said before, that change with times and with the society in which we live. And, I mean, maybe it will be okay to become cannibals at some point in the future. I mean, maybe from the cannibals' point of view, it wasn't such a bad thing to be cannibals. You know, they got a little protein that way. Um, you know, they, uh, they only actually ate people that were their enemies. Um, Hitler, from the point of view of the Germans, was not such a terrible guy. You know, he was, he was really a nice man, according to the Germans. Millions of them actually uh, you know, worshipped him. Because he delivered them from, um, well, first of all, he delivered, delivered them from the gold standard. He made the, the, the Deutschmark, the Reichsmark, the Reichsmark, yeah. And, um, you know, without that, they were in a terrible state in Germany. Of course he did some bad things. Like I said, some people do bad things. But does that make it evil? Was he an evil man or just a misguided or maybe psychiatrically ill person? The question of good and evil is a very simple one. All ethics are relative. They're relative either to God or they're relative to man, human beings. We either are governed by the absolute law and authority of God or it's the absolute ethics of Claire or Tom or Frank or Jill and whatever they think is best. And uh, even when we talk about evil, the problem, the, the, in a sense this focuses the problem tonight, is you can't rationally talk about evil without God, in the same way that you can't actually have rationality without Him. You see, you've either got a, un a universe of total flux and change in a, in a Darwinian universe, for example, well, what's ethical, you know, this year, in 50 years' time, as evolution changes all things, including your brain, maybe we'll have a different set of assumptions about the world. Claire says God doesn't set a good example. But I'd love to be able to do a study of biblical law and case law about 1500 years before Confucius. Moses gave us the Ten Commandments. And God does set a very good example. You can read the Decalogue. We have to be able to distinguish between standing law, that's the Ten Commandments, case law, which is illustrations of how it was applied, and biblical narrative about things that went on in the ancient world which God does not endorse. And it seems that uh, Claire is either not willing or unable to make those distinctions this evening. We haven't really got time to talk about it uh, in detail. But either there is true good and evil, or we're just left with our subjective preferences, and maybe tomorrow you can just go and chew on your neighbor's leg if you're feeling happy. <laughs> Important one. First of all, 
take note of the context of what is in the question. The questioner asks, notes the complexity, the marvellous complexity of the universe and our understanding of our relationship to it. Notice all of those phrases. There is a marvellous complexity, i.e. there's order, there's design, there's structure, there is a specified complexity about it. There is a universe. Well, what's to say it's a universe? In a universe of brute fact, the atheist universe, there isn't a universe, there's a multiverse. There's a multiplicity of unrelated, discrete facts that we can't relate together. They are impervious to reason because they are irrational. They are unrelated. So the scientist has to and does presuppose a set of assumptions about the world to speak of marvellous complexity and understanding and relationship. How do you know that your mind gives you any understanding of the universe out there? You, you may have ideas that exist in your mind. Einstein understood this clearly. He spoke about it. He said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that the universe is comprehensible. Why should there be any relationship between the, the ideas in my mind, or the scientist's mind, and the irrational world out there? And then try and relate the two together. No, it requires a common creator for both to give you rationality. And the second part of the question, well, if God didn't exist, wouldn't we have just invented him anyway? This comes from Feuerbach and Freud, of course. For Feuerbach, uh, theology was disguised anthropology. God's just a projection. It's an old argument. And for Freud, God was the cosmic neurosis. Well, we talked a bit about Freud, and I think that uh, he had some issues. He needed some couch time himself. Um, <laughs> but uh, projection and uh, invention, these things cut both ways. I will talk a little bit more in another portion of the question about, uh, uh, in a, a bit later on, about this notion of invention. But what if we spin that on its head and say, well, what if actually morally we don't want there to be a God psychologically? Wouldn't we actually want to write God out of the universe, which is exactly what we've done? See, man has invented a God, but not the God of Scripture. He's always opposed to the God of Scripture. Even the Jews rebelled against the God of Scripture. The Hebrew nation always disobeyed it. We have invented gods. Yeah, we have. Ourselves. You look at all the ancient religions of antiquity, they would date the deification of men as gods. We have always worshipped ourselves. So when we've had opportunity to invent gods, we've done so ourselves. Not the God of Scripture. We don't want the God of Scripture who judges sin and holds us accountable. We want gods of our own imagination. Yes, we've invented those. I actually don't need to answer that question because I think it's covered in the next question, more or less. You know, it's rather similar, right? So if you just read that out, I'll just go straight to that. This, this question is for both of our speakers tonight. And this was another question from Dr. Greer. This question, uh, as I said, will be answered by both our participants. Dr. Greer says, what rationale could we use to select one of the many gods worshipped in human history as something other than human invention? Okay, well, all gods in history are equally figments of man's imagination. There's no difference between the Roman and Greek gods, except they're not fashionable right now, or the Christian God in that respect. Allah is just another name for the God of Abraham, Yahweh. Why do almost as many people worship Allah as a Christian God? 
There's a lot of unanswered questions here. So, yes, I mean, it is all human intervention, isn't it? I could worship Santa Claus, I could worship the spaghetti monster. Uh, what else? I could worship leprechauns. Um, what else? Yeah, any supernatural thing, whatever I fancy. I can, I can invent all sorts of gods. The only reason the Christian God has survived so long is, as I said before, political. Money and power. Politics. It's been promoted extremely well throughout history. Actually, the Muslims are doing a slightly better job of promoting their God right now, so maybe you know, Christians shouldn't be too complacent. totally powerless, fearful disciples hiding in a room in Jerusalem without political power, without influence, without any kind of authority, uh, being persecuted by the Jewish authorities uh, within a few centuries uh, of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Roman world was being radically converted. Today the great uh, strength of Christianity is in Southeast Asia, South America and Africa, not where people are relatively powerless politically, so I reject that thesis altogether. First of all, as we consider this second part of this question, which it really is, what rationale can we use to decide between the other gods? Let's just talk about that for a moment. What other gods? The world's faiths are non-theistic. Beyond biblical faith, that is, the Judeo-Christian worldview, the Hebrew-Christian worldview of the creative God of Scripture, and late Christian heresy, seven centuries after Christ, like Islam, which is the best way to understand Islam, a late Aryan cult, uh, which borrowed from Christian Scriptures but rejected the Christian interpretation of the life of Christ. What other God? Hinduism is atheism. It believes in being or nothingness, Brahman. Buddhism is atheism. It believes in non-being as ultimate. Shintoism, Confucianism, these are animistic, pantheistic ideas. Only one perspective posits the infinite, eternal creator, the infinite, personal creator God in his biblical faith. And those that have copied it since. There are no other gods. So this whole notion of uh, what about all the other gods that have been invented? What gods are you talking about? These are, if you read Homer and the Iliad, these ancient Greek mythologies and the mythologies of ancient Babylon, all these gods, so-called, arise from the primal chaos. They are inside the universe. They're not external to it. So a study of comparative religion is important here. As for a rationale, no, the atheist has no rationale. You're absolutely right. Without the God of Scripture, the world is irrational. So you can't have a rationale to decide between these gods because there's no laws of thought that transcend our minds. There is no ultimate rationality or relationship between any aspect of our experience. There isn't rationality. There's no rationale for anything. You're just slime that evolved rationality by chance from the goo through the zoo to you. <laughs> Professor of Emeritus University of Toronto, 
since science cannot prove or disprove the existence of God, why do atheists like Richard Dawkins persist in claiming that atheism is scientific, but religion is generally, and, and Christianity specifically is not? Yeah, I love it when people talk about atheism. What is atheism? There are atheists, but there isn't a belief or a religion called atheism. Richard Dawkins would be particularly, Professor Richard Dawkins, I should say, would be particularly upset at hearing himself described that way. Uh, he certainly hasn't claimed that atheism is scientific. An atheist is not believing in God. So, if trying to say atheism is some sort of belief system, is like saying not collecting stamps is a hobby. Uh, anyway, turning to the next part of the question, uh, well, Christianity is obviously not scientific. I mean, we showed that earlier today. They don't use the scientific method of hypothesis, experimentation, testing, observation, and results. They start with the conclusion that there is a God, and then work backwards trying to prove it. They make big leaps of faith and assumptions. The Bible says so. How scientific is that? No one has ever proven the existence of God scientifically. In the Dover trials in Philadelphia, intelligent design was ruled by a high court judge to be non-scientific. And he just said it was another sneaky way of talking about creationism and accused the people of lying. evolutionary atheism and non-Christians, secular people are defending Christians in the Washington Post at the moment against his absurd statements. Uh, Richard is very helpful to Christian apologists because of the kind of thing that he actually says. He says atheism is true, which is by definition absurd because there is no truth in an atheist universe that can be known by us or communicated to anybody else. There is no such category as truth. Truth is an abstract idea. That there is an actual case of affairs that can be known, understood, described, and then communicated. In the chaos, there is no actual, total state of affairs, no objective context for understanding. When you consider the atheist perspective, it's interesting that Bertrand Russell says, the first dogma which I came to disbelieve was that of free will. It seemed to me that all motions of matter were determined by the laws of dynamics and could not therefore be influenced by the human will. In other words, whatever Dawkins or Bertrand Russell believes has got nothing to do with belief. There I agree with uh, uh, Claire, if atheism is true, it just has everything to do with laws that govern the material motions in your mind, in your brain. In other words, none of your beliefs are the product of you thinking rationally, weighing evidence, questioning things, as in questioning whether Jesus' eyewitness accounts for his miracles and resurrection uh, are actually true or not. That's the scientific method. Eyewitness testing, going to the tomb, so on and so forth. That I would call that a fairly rational test. Uh, there is no such thing as free will or free inquiry in an atheist universe. You are purely determined. Bertrand Russell and the atheists agree.
your turn, and this question is rather long, but I appreciated the question when I looked at the emails yesterday because it got the youth of the community involved. This young man attends St. Mary's Secondary School, and he's in his final year. His question to Reverend Boot is, given your educational history, I think it's safe to say that you do not adhere to Christianity by blind faith, but have made an educated decision to follow Christ. If we can agree that there are Christians out there who have accepted Christ blindly, and have done whatever you deem necessary to achieve everlasting life, how is it that God can grant these people everlasting life while punishing those who worship false gods by way of the exact same process with everlasting punishment? Well, first of all, the Christian faith, uh, biblical faith, has nothing to do with blind leaps into the irrational. Uh, nobody has, no Christian has a blind faith. Uh, Jesus says he's come to give sight to the blind, the spiritually blind as well as the intellectually blinded. So that the Bible teaches, actually the Christian faith teaches, that all people deep down know in their own consciousness that they are creatures and that there is a God. So much so that the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that we are without excuse for not acknowledging the creator God of Scripture. So, no Christian comes to Christ through blind faith. Many don't have no sophisticated arguments for the existence of God or for uh, some of the things we've been discussing tonight and have no such specialized knowledge, but then probably most of you have never had your DNA tested to see if your parents are your parents. You believe it anyway, because you've got other reasons that you think are credible that mean you trust that your parents are indeed your parents. And so a specialized knowledge of philosophy is not, does not, make, uh, is not a requirement of being a Christian and certainly doesn't make one's faith blind. I have the conviction tonight that I am in a lecture hall in Kohlberg delivering, involved in a debate. I don't need any evidence for that. It's immediately apparent to me. I find myself with that belief. Many people find themselves with the belief in God and they find it rational and tenable as a properly basic belief. Christians do not come to faith either through their intellectual acumen or the power of their own minds. The Bible says that we come to faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the pagan process is not the exact same process. And according to scripture, no uh, pagan religion or philosophy is without some understanding of the true God. As for hell and judgment, hell is self-perpetuating. Hell, uh, Rebellion against God is basically the idea that I am God. That's what existentialism is. That's what atheism is. I'm going to find truth, define truth, morality, right and wrong, true and false, in terms of my own understanding and in terms of my own mind. Hell is the perfection of that wish. Total isolation, the claim that you are your own God. Because it's a lie, it leaves you in a universe of total meaninglessness and in total isolation. And I'll call on both uh, members of the panel for closing remarks. First, Reverend Joe Boot. Four minutes you have for closing comments. Four minutes. Well, it's tough staying in these time frames, as you can see, but uh, four minutes to justify God. Well, thankfully, 
Uh, it's not my responsibility to do that. Ultimately, that's the work of the Spirit of God. So I don't think that I can convince anyone tonight that God is. But I do believe that I can show that it's rational and necessary to assume, to presuppose God's existence in order to make any intelligible sense of what we're doing this evening. I've advanced essentially one argument in different forms tonight. Even though atheists regard it as an intellectual obscenity to assert God and his revelation because man wants to be his own absolute standard, we have transferred the idea of truth not uh, from God to our own minds. The standard of infallibility and to truth has been transferred to our minds and to the moment from God. The problem is that when we try to discover truth by this standard and try and search out to find meaning and connectedness and purpose and so forth without God, we find that we discover there is no ultimate meaning or truth or morality or purpose and we end up destroying ourselves because all we can speak is not a word of truth as God speaks because he knows and governs all things in terms of an absolute context. We can only speak a word of flux, a word of change, a word of chance. It gives us nothing but an ultimate chaos. The choice tonight is actually between two worldviews. The most to which the non-theist can attest is to affirm is to affirm the I, the thinking self, nothing beyond that. You may be a non-theist, but all you can affirm about reality ultimately is that you are a thinking subject. And even then, I don't think you can truly account for that. In the Christian worldview, we don't deny the subjective element in truth, but we say that truth is relative to God, and his absolute perspective is the one which governs our understanding of reality, and our thought is reconstructed. I think God's thoughts after him. I discover his meaning. I discover his truth. I discover his law, because it's truly there. I'm not left in this sea of blindness and chaos trying to make up a meaning for myself. That's a stark choice. The choice tonight is between a world of total meaning and a universe of total meaninglessness. There's nothing in between. You can pretend the world's got meaning, yes. But that doesn't mean that there is any objective meaning in it. The biggest problem facing the non-theist, the atheist, is that they know they're not the creator. They know this deep inside. We know we do not create or control or sustain our environment. And we are left, therefore, in an endless sea of scepticism. Our minds cannot be the ultimate standard. But this is how John's Gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the life of men. Christian argument is that truth, reason, logic, math, science, morality, personal identity, dignity, language, learning, communication only have an adequate foundation when God is at the root of all things. The ancient Greek anti-theist and materialist Democritus, an atheist, said, The truth about the universe is summed up in two words, atoms and the void. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Behind us on the stage here are the artwork of Dr. Rosen, very talented. 
Thank you very much for being here.
tonight I'd like to thank Jeff Bell and his volunteers who worked so hard today to get the hall set up and, and make the arrangements to have this debate this evening. It's been a wonderful opportunity for you to hear both sides of a coin and I'd like to personally thank both our debaters and I wish they would stand and receive your applause. And best of all, you have been an absolutely phenomenal audience to deal with. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.